You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is How to Think About Science in the Age of Evolution, Episode 1 with Thomas Bentley. Hello and welcome to this series, How to Think About Science in the Age of Evolution. My name is Thomas Bentley and as we delve into the topic of science, let's begin with a word of prayer. Why not pray to the God who started it all in the first place? Father in heaven, thank you so much for science, for the ability to be able to think your thoughts after you and discover the things that have been made and how they work. Thank you so much for that and as we go into this presentation, I'm praying for that special person who wants to be in science, who's thinking about a career in science, that they would be watching this and they would be impressed by you and also by what's really happening in science today. Thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's begin. Uh, in this series, it's really a pretty simple agenda. What we're going to do is talk about why it matters that you understand science in the age of evolution. And then we're going to talk about the four things that you need to know about science in the age of evolution. And finally, just the one thing you need to do. So that's our agenda today. Let's get started. Why does it matter that we understand science in the age of evolution? Well, the answer is, number one, there's three things, but the first is this. Most people really don't understand science. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, most of us, when we're thinking about science, we're actually not where science is practiced today. We're not in the laboratories. We're not where they're doing the practice of science. And we don't go to their conferences for the individual fields of science. We don't read their journals. And as a result, when we're thinking about science, we really get science from other sources. For example, many people get the idea of their concept of science from technology. You know, science produces progress and we look at the things like our cell phone and we think to ourselves, well, that's science. And if that's real, then all of science is real. Everything they believe must be real because that's real. But that's not really where science is today. That's kind of like science past, the discoveries long ago that we can apply and make technology out of them. Another place where we learn about science and we think about it is through the movies. Oftentimes there are all kinds of crazy uh, things about science that we see and we think about. We think that are real because we see them in the movies, but that's not really where science is happening. Oftentimes we see science through television programs or the news programs we watch on television or a guy like Bill Nye, the science guy, who's not really a scientist, but he stands on the bully pulpit of science and he's actually an avowed atheist. So you're getting a really kind of a skewed view of science from this guy. Or maybe from school, you know, children who are sitting in the schoolroom, they're getting an idea of what science is from a teacher who's perhaps not even a scientist. Or maybe you get your idea of science through the magazines, the media that we see in our world today. All of these different avenues really are how we see science. They're all filtered by these different uh, points of view. And so we really don't know much about what's actually happening in science. The second reason you need to understand science in the age of evolution is the fact that science is not value neutral. We know this from the past. The things that scientists believe actually have an impact on society. And you think about social Darwinism, this idea that we should uh, claw up on the backs of one another to get to the top, survival of the fittest, all of these things that sponsored World War I, World War II, and communism, and various other horrible things that happened in our world, all because of the thoughts of scientists. 
Think about the popular idea of eugenics, which is very much with us today, telling us that some people are more evolved than others and we should call the human population, get rid of people. Uh, the current science advisor is an example of that. This is a guy who combines social Darwinism, he combines eugenics and radical environmentalism all at the same time. And imagine, this is the man who's in the science advisor to the President of the United States. And so this is why we have people like uh, the, this man right up here, David Attenborough, who will tell us that human beings are actually a plague on the planet. And this is just an example of the ripple effects of the societal impact of science in our world. So science is not value neutral. And finally, number three, we need to understand science in the age of evolution because science is an authority. Think about a child or an adult sitting in a classroom. They're not there as experts. They're there trusting that the people that are teaching them are teaching them real facts and real things. They're reading textbooks that they believe are teaching them real things. And so authority is a very important thing to remember because authority, according to Merriam-Webster, is the power to influence command, thought, opinion, or behavior. And this is a big deal if you're a person of faith. Because what happens when something you read in science counters that faith that you have? So if you're allowing science to be, uh, draw your opinions, your beliefs, then you're allowing science basically to lead you in your life. Is that really a good thing to do? Well, according to this scientist, Dr. Alvin Plantinga, he's an analytic uh, philosophy, he writes in this book, Where the Conflict Really Lies, Science, Religion, and Naturalism, that the answer is no. He says, first, science doesn't address some of the topics where we most need enlightenment, religion, politics, and morals, for example. He goes on to say, many look to scientists for guidance on matters which scientists have no special expertise. They apparently think of scientists as the new priestly class. Unsurprisingly, scientists don't ordinarily discourage this tendency. But of course, a scientist pontificating on matters outside her field is no better than anyone else pontificating on matters outside her field. And he goes on to say this. Second, science contradicts itself both over time and at the same time. Two of the most important and overarching contemporary scientific theories are general relativity and quantum mechanics. Both are highly confirmed and enormously impressive. Unfortunately, they can't both be correct. And so, friends, we need to understand science in the age of evolution. In fact, one doctor who wrote, uh, Dr. Robert Youngston, who wrote this book, Scientific Blunders, A Brief History on How Wrong Scientists Can Be Sometimes, he says, attitudes to science are determined almost entirely by how much people know about it. And so what we, I would like to do here today is just talk a little bit about it so that you can change your attitude towards science. Let's go ahead and look. And there's four ways that you can do that. There are four things that every person of faith needs to know about science in the age of evolution. And let's take a look at the first one right here. The first one is very simple. Science is not the truth. I know that sounds kind of funny, but actually scientists themselves know this to be the fact. And let me explain what I mean. Uh, let's look at Dr. Arthur N. Stradler of Columbia University. He writes in his book, Understanding Science, this. He says, I suggest that in our search for insight into the nature of science, we set some strict limits to how we use the word fact, actuality, and truth. Let us vow never again to say scientists discover the truth. 
Observation statements that are the building blocks of science and of all knowledge within the research fields are designed only to minimize the probability of failing to make a true statement. Let us admit that the human brain and mind will never be privy to truth in science. So science, even scientists know that science is not the truth and the reason for that is the very nature of science itself. Science uh, comes from the Latin word scientia which basically means knowledge. And science is essentially a systematic enterprise of gathering knowledge and then classifying that knowledge, organizing it and condensing it into testable laws and theories. And once you understand that science really at its heart is knowledge, then everything changes. Dr. Peter Godfrey Smith, who is a philosopher of science, writes in his book Theory and Reality that there is still a great deal of disagreement about even the most basic questions concerning the status of scientific knowledge. There's always been a battle in science over what really is knowledge. And I'll give you an example of where that happens uh, in a lecture that I heard from Dr. Stephen Goldman of Lehigh University. And it's, and it's called Science Wars, What Scientists Know and How They Know It, where he talks about how this battle is played out for, for eons by, by discussing what happened to uh, a Greek philosopher whose name was Plato in one of his dialogues called The Sophist. And here's kind of how it plays out. In The Sophist, there are two classes of people. There's the heavenly dwellers, and of course that's the philosophers, and then there are the earth dwellers, and those are the sophists, They're kind of like the good guys, bad guys. And the heavenly dwellers, the way they see knowledge is very lofty. They see knowledge as that about which one cannot be wrong. It's universal, it's necessary, it's certain, it's timeless. In other words, anything that's knowledge has to be the same today as it is forever. It's timeless. It never changes. Knowledge is, and because it's you know, basically done by deductive reasoning, it can never change. Well, the earth dwellers, on the other hand, the sophists, had a different idea. For them, knowledge is linked with experience and real life decisions. Knowledge is always related to your cultural beliefs or a particular context in which you're gathering that knowledge, or perhaps the assumptions that you make while you're gathering that knowledge. And so, for them, knowledge really was probable, and it was possible that it could be wrong, and it could change. Well, it turns out that scientists have this battle going on all the time. They, anything that they, they currently claim to be true, they want to believe that it's a timeless truth, that it never changes, and they'll stand on their bully pulpit and say, I have this knowledge that's timeless, but the reality is, according to the philosophy of science, is really closer to the earth dwellers. That what we gather as knowledge as humans really is subject to change, without notice, in fact. And the reason for that is it can best be described by Dr. Fernando Canale, who is a professor of philosophy and hermeneutics. He says that the act of knowledge, very, the very act of gathering knowledge, is always a subject-object relationship. Let me explain what I mean. In the classical model, what we have, if we're trying to discover something in the classical model, what we'll find is that uh, you have a subject, and the subject is trying to discover something from an object. The object itself is the ground truth, if you will, and there's always a relationship between the two, and the knowledge that's derived from that relationship never comes directly out of the object itself, but always from a relationship between the two. So the subject always adds to the knowledge that we call science. And that's just the way it is. Let me give you an example of how that works in science. Take descriptive science for a moment. If the subject here is a leaf, the leaf is the ground truth. 
The subject then, in, in descriptive science, tries to minimize their, their influence on the knowledge, and so they use whatever tools they have to look at descriptions of what it is. For example, it's color, size, texture, weight, etc. But even that is not the absolute truth. Why? Because as you apply more technology or more modern technology, you'll learn new things. For example, if you just used a, a magnifying glass, you can only use so, you can learn so much. But if you use a, a electron microscope, then all of a sudden, what you learn can grow. So you can never really say that even descriptive science tells you the absolute truth, because the limitation on it is the technology and the willingness of the scientist to limit their own contribution. Another method that you have in science is called normal science. And I want you to really pay attention to this one because in normal science, we have the same relationship. But this time, the scientist adds to the knowledge based upon the scientist's experience that they have, their worldviews, their politics, and the paradigms that they exist in. All of those things play into what we call knowledge in science. The object, of course, is the ground truth. But in, every, in normal science, the scientist adds all these things to that knowledge. Whatever they believe about that, that object, they will add to that. That's called normal science, and that's how it works today. And so let's take an example here. Let's say you have scientist one, scientist two, and each one of them has a paradigm. They're looking at the same object, the universe here, but each one has a different paradigm as to how the universe formed. If you were to ask these guys then to write a report, you would probably find that that report will be similar in some places, but absolutely different in others, because they were based upon two different belief systems. And so the limitation in normal science is the technology that you're using to study the object, and number two, the beliefs that you have that formulate the knowledge that we call science. And this is why science basically is not the truth. Because what happens over time is that these things that we call knowledge and science, they change. These paradigms, they will shift from one to the other. I'll give you an example. There was a time in, in Earth's history as man looked up at the stars and they wanted to try to make predictions about what these things were and where they were located and how they were moving. That there was a philosopher named Aristotle, and, and Aristotle saw that the, when he looked up there, his theory or his paradigm was that the earth was a sphere that was positioned at the very center of the universe and that everything rotated around the earth. And of course, he had a, he, as he was looking at these rotations, he had another paradigm, and that was that as they were rotating around the earth, they rotated around the earth in little complex circles. Well, about 150 years after Aristotle, a man named Ptolemy, he developed an actual system where you could try to predict where things would go. And, and some of it worked. And he actually placed the sun between Venus and Mars. And so Ptolemy's system kind of looked like this, with the Earth at the center, these crazy little complex rotations of these kind of planets. And that's how he saw the world. And you know, this paradigm existed for basically centuries. This was the knowledge in science until you get to the time of Copernicus. And Copernicus had a new paradigm. The knowledge shifted. This time he placed the sun at the center of our solar system. But you know what's interesting is that his predictions would not have been any better than Ptolemy's. And the reason for that was, if you were living in that day, was because he kept the Aristotle's uh, paradigm that these these things that rotate around the sun rotate in these crazy little complex circles. It wasn't until we get to the era of Kepler with uh, better telescopes, mathematics, that there was a new paradigm that he came up with. He, his paradigm was that, no, 
Let's, the, everything rotates around the sun, but they rotate in simple ellipses. And then with Kepler, we finally got to the place in history where we were actually mapping out what was more close to what was really happening in our universe. But the point I wanted to share with you is that in every single era, the people that had the science in that day believed that was the absolute truth, but the reality was that it was based upon their perceptions and upon their opinions and beliefs, and that that reality changed over time as technology increased. And of course, the same thing's happening today. As, as we discovered the universe in, in the 20th century, we used to believe that that universe had a, a, some type of substance in it called aether. And that's how light was propagated. But of course, with Einstein and newer discoveries, we learned that that's not the case. And, and we're learning things every day. My point here is very simple. Science is not the truth. <laughs> science will change. You see, as beliefs change, the knowledge in science changes. As we move from uh, the beliefs of Aristotle to the beliefs of Kepler, all of a sudden what we learned in science was starting to approach what was really out there. That's my point. But you know, just as well, you could have a paradigm change in science, like for example, atheistic evolution, that will lead us further and further away from what's actually out there, from the truth that we find in science. It can happen both ways. And so friends, science is not the truth. Let me summarize. Science is a human endeavor. The absolute truth regarding the object of study is never reached because technology changes and paradigms change. And that's really the basis of what's happening here. But I'm going to share with you that if you are making science truth, if you're putting science up on a pedestal, guess what you need to do? You need to put a cautionary statement there that says, science as truth is subject to change without notice. <laughs> and that's a fact. You know, I'm going to ask you a question. Where should Christians go to base their lives on? Where should they go to base truth for their lives? It should not be on science, which changes with the wind. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 24 to 27. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell and that house stood firm. If you put your faith in science, it's like you're building your life on sand. Because while there may be progress, everything that they tell you in science is not based upon truth, but on uh, the normal science, which is the opinions and beliefs of scientists plus the object of their studying. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And what this shows me is that this Bible is really the place where we want to put the foundation of our lives because it gives us everything we need to know how to live on this earth today. Okay, let's look at the second thing you need to know about science in the age of evolution. And that's this. Science is like the circus and the ringmaster in that circus is the paradigm. You need to understand that in science. Let me explain what I'm talking about. You know, every, if you've ever been to the circus, you'll notice that all the action in the circus happens in the big circus ring. And there are many kinds of acts in the circus that you'll see. You've got the clown acts, and there's the jugglers, and there's the trapeze artists, and all the animal acts. And it's interesting that science is very similar. There's lots of different acts in science. I mean, you could just think about so many. Thermodynamics, computer engineering, sociology, and there's some that you might not even imagine, like feminist science or politics, political, there's part of politics is in science, or science studies, things that if you studied into them, you'd go, whoa, I cannot believe that that's actually science, but they're in there. The big ring of science is huge, and there are lots of different fields 
that are within science. And here's what's interesting. The ringmaster, just like in the circus, is the one who controls all the action. The ringmaster basically introduces the acts. He gives them credibility. And the ringmaster in science is this thing called the paradigm. A paradigm actually is the ringmaster in the science today. Let me explain what I mean. A paradigm is an assumption. It's a presupposition or it's a belief about how something should be or how something should act. That's what it is. And another word for a paradigm could be a hypothesis or maybe a theory. That could be a paradigm that scientists believe. And these are the ringmasters in the big circus tent of science. Uh, this is where we find this information out. Dr. Thomas S. Kuhn, in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, he is a philosopher of science, and what he reveals to us is that these paradigms actually form the social nature or the social net in science. He writes that paradigms are a sign of maturity in a given field, seen as more successful than competing paradigms in solving problems that a specific group of scientists finds important. They commit scientists to the same rules, and, and probably most importantly, they're inflexible. They restrict any theory that comes from outside what the paradigm supplies. And this is why I say that this paradigms that we have in science today, and all of the different fields have them, and many of them have the same paradigm that kind of overarches all of them, these paradigms are really ringmasters in science because they control what's allowed. And this is basically the message of Dr. Kuhn. It is that the paradigm that's in power currently is the one that determines what is considered scientific. It's as simple as that. It's the ringmaster. Anything else doesn't get in. And this is why we see uh, the materialistic explanation of origins, Darwinism, as being popular because the paradigm that's in power today in science is this. Uh, it, for example, Professor C.P. Martin talks about what is it like to be outside of the paradigm. He's a Christian and he's an anti-Darwinist. He's from McGill University in Montreal. And in the book, Creation and Evolution, Rethinking the Evidence, they talk about what he's basically saying. Why aren't there more scientists just chiming up and telling the world, hey, this isn't true? Well, here's what he says. As to our fewness, it must be remembered that unless we command independent means of publication, it is very difficult for us to obtain a hearing today. You know, I remember uh, going to a pastor's meeting in Minnesota one time where we had a scientist come from one of our uh, universities. He was a biologist, and he was supposedly there to teach us about, you know, creation evolution. But the first thing he said when he got in the room was, he said, I'm not going to say a word about evolution. And he was afraid that somebody was there with a laptop that was recording what he was saying. It would end up on YouTube, and then he would not be allowed to play in the, you know, the science games because his paradigm would be different than the popular paradigm. This is simply how it works in science. But the, the main driver paradigm in science is something called naturalistic philosophy. This is the philosophy that drives all of science today. And I want to share, for that person that's watching this right now, if you're a young person that you're, maybe you're in an engineering class or you're a person that's going to be, wants to be a scientist or you're practicing science, this is for you right now. I want to share with you that there's a difference between methodological naturalism and naturalistic philosophy. There's actually a big difference, and I'll explain what that is. Methodological naturalism essentially is the practice of doing science without invoking an outside cause to stop the discussion. You know, you would use natural laws and testable consequences, just like Baconian science, 
But when you come to a place where you can't understand something, you wouldn't just say, well, I guess a fairy did it. That would be invoking an outside cause. Let me give you some examples of how you can evoke an outside cause to stop the discussion. And probably one of the most prevalent examples of that is evolution's leftovers, where they would tell you in the past when they didn't understand what the appendix was for, they said, well, that's just leftover from your evolution. That's evoking an outside cause to stop the discussion. Or maybe the last bone on your spine that they said, evolutionists said was your former tail, which we now know has muscles attached to it. Or maybe junk DNA. When they don't understand all the functions of DNA, then they tell you, well, that's just leftover from your evolution. All of these things are examples of evoking an outside cause to stop the discussion. Let me give you an example of this from the New Encyclopedia of Unbelief. They write this. Science and religion are not necessarily at loggerheads, and the results of scientific inquiry do not necessarily controvert religious belief. Nevertheless, there are clear tensions between scientific and religious knowledge systems. Scientists employ methodological naturalism, the normative concept that scientific investigations use only natural law and its consequences and deal only with objects or claims that have testable consequences in the natural world. They go on to write, Methodological naturalism is different from philosophic naturalism, the ontological conviction that nothing exists beyond natural law and effect. While scientists are necessarily methodological naturalists, they are not necessarily philosophical naturalists and therefore not necessarily unbelievers. And they conclude with this. They say, there is nothing contradictory about practicing methodological naturalism and belief in a creator God. However, philosophic naturalism, which is based in religious atheism, precludes the belief in a creator. And so this is very important for you to understand. The, the number one paradigm in science today is this paradigm of naturalistic philosophy, which of course is atheism. That is the paradigm in science today. For, and one of the examples of that is materialism. Materialism is a scientific theory that applies naturalistic philosophy to produce explanations that atheists and secular humanists will agree with. I mean, that's just how it works. That's what materialism is. I'll give you an example. This is uh, from uh, a Cambridge MIT press. It's called The Natural History of Rape by Thornhill R. Palmer. And he writes this, that rape is an evolutionary adaptation that permits men unsuccessful in marriage to propagate their genes. Now what we see here in this, basically in this immoral behavior, is they're taking a, uh, making a materialistic explanation to explain a, a behavior so that only an atheist or an evolutionist would agree with it. That's essentially what materialism is. And of course, uh, the theory of evolution is a materialistic explanation. So here's a summary. Science is like the circus. The ringleader in the big circus tent of science is this thing called the paradigm. And the popular paradigm in the age of evolution is naturalistic philosophy and materialism. Friends, that was the conclusion of part one of how to think about science in the age of evolutionism. Now, in part two, we'll continue this series. So stay tuned as we learn the rest of the four things you need to know and the one thing you need to know to keep your faith in the age of evolution. I'll see you then. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, 
visit amazingdiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.